Hey gang, this is Pastor Eric Sorensen coming to you on this Tuesday morning to talk to you again about our uh, time in 1 Peter. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 again today, verses 9 through 17. Uh, I hope you had a, a good Memorial Day. I hope you got to rest and and to actually take a little time to observe, um, especially, I mean, especially here, obviously, if you're in America, those who uh, died in service to our country, and uh, hope you got to rest a little bit. I did get to rest yesterday, which was very nice, and, um, but I'm looking forward to being back at it again today. Good morning, Glenna. Good morning, Nancy. Um, so last week, we talked about uh, good morning, Bonnie. We talked about five characteristics of those who suffer well. And the characteristics were unity of mind, uh, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And one of the things that we saw about these characteristics is that we, we have actually attained these characteristics by virtue, good morning, Cindy, of our union with Christ, purely by the gracious hand of God, for the purpose of enduring difficulties, trials and difficulties and persecutions as the early church was dealing with it. The way that Peter constructs the sentence in Greek is, is, more, is less uh, of a command and more of a promise that this is what God is working in us and has given us by virtue of our union with Jesus. Good morning, Whitney. And so today we're going to uh, sort of, we're going to be looking at that in the same vein, but um, since God has given us these characteristics, that this is who he says we are, now we sort of move on to how we are to respond to trials and difficulties. What is the Christian response to those who would persecute us, to our enemies? How are we to uh, respond when people are unfairly attacking us or going after us? And he begins in, in verse 9, the uh, first thing Peter mentions as a response to persecutions, trials, or suffering is to bless your enemies. Now, uh, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, again, something that is incredibly shocking to our system. He said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Good morning, Danielle. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? That's, the, that's what Jesus essentially says. So it's clear, as much as we may not want to hear it at times, that the way we are to respond, that we are called as Christians to respond to those who would persecute us to enemies, is to bless them or speak well of them. Peter says it this way, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, again, 
this is easier said than done, and the flesh hates this thing. So even though in our new, as new creatures, we have been given characteristics that are holy and divine and great, that we indeed have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind, we have those things. We still have this old Adam, the old person, the flesh, the sinful nature, battling against this, wanting to do everything possible to stick up for itself and to demand that it gets uh, perfect justice, not for itself, but for others, grace for itself, but, you know, justice for others. And so this is incredibly hard work. I mean, this is killing the flesh type stuff that Jesus and Peter are calling us to because there is nothing more difficult than to bless our enemy when they're giving us every reason to curse them. But I do want to tell you it is possible. And as a matter of fact, when this happens, when the world sees Christians bless their enemies, it is one of the times that the world sort of sits back in awe or is sort of mystified. They don't know how to quite deal with so much grace being displayed. It is, it, it is significantly used by God and has been throughout all of history when the Christian blesses instead of curses, even though they have every right to. I'll give you a quick example of this from a Philip Yancey book, What's So Amazing About Grace, years ago. Some of you have heard my preaching, may have heard this story, but I use it because it's such a great example of what it looks like. After the end of apartheid in South Africa, Rather than go after their enemies with sword in hand and, you know, machine guns, etc., uh, Nelson Mandela started a government panel called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the goal of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission was really completely different than anything that governments typically do. Um, Philip Yancey recounts the way it plays out here. He says, quote, the rules were simple if a white policeman or army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried and punished for that crime. Pretty remarkable. And so at one hearing, a policeman named Vanderbroek uh, recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body, uh, then turned it on a fire like a piece of barbecue meat, just awful, in order to destroy the evidence and then eight years later, this same officer, Vanderbroek, returned to the same house and sees the boy's father. And the wife was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a wood pile and poured gasoline over him and burned him alive. So if there was ever anybody that deserved cursing and punishment, it was this awful police officer. And so the courtroom uh, was quite silent as... The woman who had lost her son and her husband was finally given a chance to respond. And they said, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbroek? And she said she wanted Vanderbroek to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial. And, of course, his head down, the policeman nodded in agreement. You know, that's obviously very reasonable. But then she added a further request. She said, Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me. I still have a lot of love to give. 
Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, this <laughs> is almost too good, some in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace as this happened. And as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand, Vanderbroek passed out overwhelmed at the grace that he had received. You see, grace came that day to the man because this woman chose to bless her persecutor. And that's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, when we choose to bless our enemies, God, has, God is able to do something incredibly, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's a miracle to watch grace be extended to those who may deserve, indeed, oftentimes deserve our cursing. So Peter then continues, he says, okay, how do you respond? Well, first bless your persecutor, and then be zealous for what is good. You can find that in verses 11 through 14. Uh, basically, Peter says, you know, have a zeal for what is good, seeking peace and pursue it. Uh, now, the reality is, if people know that you are truly seeking the good, or as the word in Greek says, hunting after peace. That's probably a better way of translating it. Hunting after peace. It's pretty hard for someone to continue to persecute you. The idea behind the phrase is that no matter what comes at you, you continually go after the good with the same kind of zeal that a hunter would go after a deer. You don't stop. You, you keep heading toward the prize. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was reportedly very well liked by his Nazi prison guards in the concentration camps. Now, was it because he was a kiss-up? No, not at all. He was not in any way known for being that. As a matter of fact, it was because they knew that he was absolutely, no matter what, even if they disagreed with him, they knew he was always seeking good and pursuing peace. And there was a sense in which they respected that. There was a sense in which they didn't want to persecute him more. Thirdly, he says, Peter says, how do you respond? Well, don't fear them, but remember to fear God. That's the third thing in verses 14b and 15. It says, don't fear them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this, this verse actually is taken from the book of Isaiah. Uh, King Ahaz has everyone against him. The Assyrians, some of the most vicious people in the history of the world, are coming up against Judah to take it over. And meanwhile, the people of Judah feel that they are being led poorly by King Ahaz, and they are against him. And it's at that time that the Lord delivers his word to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, saying, quote, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The idea that Peter is conveying by quoting this verse is that no matter what we're facing in life, we're called to always recognize that nothing can happen in our lives 
apart from God allowing it to happen. Now, is that always going to be comforting? Not necessarily. No, that can actually be quite challenging. Like, well, why? You know, when we want the question answer to the question why and we don't get it. But here is what we do get when we when we remember this. We remember that ultimately our enemies are not in control of the situation, no matter how much it might seem like it. And so Peter says, remember, essentially he's saying, remember that God alone is the one who rules. That's what he's instructing these persecuted Christians to remember again. As Jesus says in the Gospels, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. So the idea being conveyed again by Peter and then first by Jesus, is that ultimately, no matter what comes, no matter what struggles, no matter what persecutions, no matter what slanders from the enemies, whether they be the spiritual enemy or whether they be physical enemies that we might face in our life, that we always recognize that God is ultimately the one who is taking care of us, the one who's giving us every breath, the one who's taking care of us uh, more intently than he takes care of the sparrows on any given day because we're far more valuable to him. And that leads to the last thing. And this is what Peter says. Uh, Peter says, therefore, if you're doing these things, like you're blessing your enemy and you're, uh, you're seeking, you're being hunters for peace and, uh, and you're fearing, you're seeing that you're trusting God above the circumstances in the moment. You're, you're, li you're believing that God is in, in control of this thing. Well, then he moves on to, probably for some of you, a quite famous set of verses. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, the first part of this verse, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, there is a whole section of Christian theology known as apologetics that in large measure is based off that one verse. Apologetics is the word uh, apologia, uh, where we get the word defense in this text in verse 15. And so all that's, uh, this verse is sort of taken in isolation to say we need to be able to defend the faith in all sorts of ways, you know, philosophically and theologically and morally. We need to be able to defend the faith. Fair enough. I love apologetics and I, I happen to, you know, like the various strands of apologetics. I mean, I'm into it that much that I can tell you what they are. But contextually here, contextually, the way this is marked out is not so much that um, apologetics is for those who really know their philosophy and who really know how to argue logically with the non-believer. 
but rather contextually. It's you are making a defense. It's like as you're being put on trial by your enemy. As you're, Here's the way it works. As your enemy sees you blessing them, and as they see that you're hunting after peace, and as they see that you're not fearing them, but you're fearing God, at some point they're going to ask you, what on earth is up with you? How are you different? This is just the context, folks. This is the context of that verse. They're coming to you. They, the, notice it says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, not the arrogance of an academician, not the arrogance of somebody that thinks they're smarter than you, but with gentleness and respect. Again, contextually, this is a response when people ask you, how on earth are you blessing me? How on earth are you talking so kindly to them? Then you get to say something like this. It doesn't necessarily have to be philosophical. It can be something like this. I'll tell you why. Why don't you hit back? Why don't you say something? Why don't you sue them? After all, this is America. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ, when he lived for me, was hit but did not hit back. When he was insulted, he stayed silent. When the nails were pounded into his arms and legs, he did not shout out for God's wrath to roll down on me, the one who put him on that cross, but rather shouted over and over and over again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It is because Jesus has forgiven me that I extend forgiveness to you. It is because I want you to know this Jesus and his forgiveness that I bless you when you persecute me, that I am zealous for good and and pursue peace. It is because Jesus is zealous for your good. It is because I want you to experience and know life without fear the way I do not fear. It is because this Jesus has risen from the dead that I now live. How about it? You want it? That's a fair enough defense. So again, not downplaying the philosophical defense of the faith. But in this context here, this is a question asked in response to people seeing you do crazy stuff like love your enemies. And they go, all right, tell me how, tell me why, because this, this seems crazy to me. And you say, I'll tell you why, because Jesus does that for me. So that's the way that works, folks. Um, that's all I got for today. Next week, we are actually going to talk up, I think, through verses 18 through 22, chapter 3 is maybe one of the purest distillations of the entire gospel, the entire sort of uh, the work of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. And so we're going to break all that down next week. But until then, have a wonderful week. God bless. We'll see you then. Bye.